Well, good morning. My name is Derek, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're getting close to Christmas, if you didn't know that. If you didn't realize through the music, we're already starting to sing. And Christmas is uh, really one of those times where we look forward to certain things. I was asking some of the kids in the back this morning, what are you looking forward to at Christmas? And it was, well, no school, right? We get time off of school. Uh, somebody else, the presents, somebody else, all of it, really. And I think, at least in my lifetime, it seems like the anticipation for Christmas gets earlier and earlier, right? You get to October and Christmas starts, you know, decorations start coming out and we kind of like that, right? It's about looking forward to what is to come. Now, this morning, I want us to look at the anticipation of the first Christmas because we have a lot of really good information in scripture. We have a lot of traditions that we do. And so when we are moving toward Christmas, we have all these great ideas of who Jesus is. I mean, we sing these songs, Jesus, our Emmanuel, Christ, all this stuff. What about the first Christmas? What were the Jews, God's people, looking forward to in the Messiah? And if we get kind of a picture of that, honestly, I believe for us, our anticipation grows. Our appreciation of who our God is grows and what he did in Christ grows. And so we're going to look at the anticipation today of the king. What were God's people expecting before Mary and Joseph took that trek to the city of David? And why did so many not recognize him when he came? I think that's important, too. We're going to see some of the things, the, the expectations that they were very aware of, and some that were kind of hidden in there but became clearer later on. Uh, what I wanted to do this morning but couldn't really figure it out was uh, one of those picture reveals. I don't know if you've ever seen those where it, it kind of slowly, or, uh, there's like games, and whoever guesses what's in the picture first wins. But that's kind of the idea of, the reveal of what's the Messiah going to be like, and it got clearer and clearer and clearer until when Jesus came, it became very clear, and they recognized who he was, many, and were saved. So here's a quiz. Where do you think the first indication is in Scripture of a coming Messiah? Now, we say the word Messiah. That is the Old Testament word, right, uh, for the coming Messiah. The Greek word is Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his last name. That's his title of Messiah, but where would be the first one? Grab your Bible, turn to page three. That's really early in the Bible. Page three, well, if you're using the Bible in front of you, if you have your own Bible, I don't know what page it's on, but we're going to be in Genesis, and I wanted to start this morning by looking at why we needed a Savior at all, why there would be a Christ, why there would be a Messiah, and so we're really starting at the very beginning in Genesis chapter three. I'm going to read uh, 6 through 13. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
So there we see sin entering creation. The, the, the story of the Bible really is what God is going to do to fix what Adam and Eve messed up. Now, again, we could point at them, but we've all sinned as well. The issue really there was sin. Sin entered the world and broke creation. Basically, it broke our relationship with God. We were made to have a loving, knowing fellowship with God, our creator, but sin created a rift. It's kind of neat as you look at the garden here. Adam and Eve were in the garden, and God came walking in the garden, right? They had a face-to-face -face relationship with God until sin broke that. And now we're going to look at the curse real quick because we know creation was, was really broken, but God cursed the man, God cursed the woman, and God cursed the serpent. And in that, we see the first hint of hope. Look at Genesis 3, 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is the very first indication that God was going to do something to fix what sin messed up. He promised what did he promise? An offspring. That's what he promised. And what would he do? Someday, a human man would win back what we lost when sin entered the world. He would conquer Satan. We see kind of two things in there. He would conquer Satan, and he would free God's people from Satan's dominion. The promise there is that there would be enmity, right, between an offspring, that the, the serpent would bruise his heel, right? What, what's, I mean, a, a bruise on the heel that hurts, but you get over it. And he would bruise the serpent's head. What's that? That's a death blow. So the promise right there was that God would do something eventually. He would send a man. And I can't help but wonder if Adam and Eve, every time they had a son or, or a daughter, if, like, is this, is this it? <laughs> you know, they have Cain. It's like maybe, maybe Cain is going to be this one. Maybe Abel is going to be this one. And then Cain kills Abel and sin continues to grow. And finally they have Seth. And Seth is the one who from his line would be this Messiah to come. So sin devastates the world, right? As you read through Genesis, then you see sin just grows and grows and grows. People get, get more and more evil, more and more violent. So God sends the flood, starts over with Noah. And then the next great indication we see is with one man, a man named Abraham. God calls Abraham. You've probably heard the songs, Father Abraham had many sons, right? Abraham comes and God says, Abraham, I want you to leave your father's land and go to a place I will show you. Abraham is a man who shows faith in God, and he goes. By the way, he's told to go to the land of Canaan, which is where Israel is today. So just try to get an idea of geography. Where Israel currently exists, that's where Abraham was going and where he landed. And in this, God makes a promise to Abraham. So we are going to now kind of skip a stone through the Old Testament. So you're free to turn there, but they're all going to appear on the screen. You may want to just you know, jot down the scripture reference. Um, you may want to look up here or you may want to hurry to him, but I'm not going to wait for you. <laughs> so Genesis 22, 17 and 18, God says this to Abraham. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is a promise. This is a covenant. And in this, he promises Abraham he will become a great nation, which he does, right? Many people. But then he makes another promise. 
that, that an offspring will possess the gate of his enemies and bless all the nations of the earth. Uh, timeline, this is about 2000 BC. So 4,000 years ago-ish. Well, how about that second promise? Galatians 3.16 gives us some insight. It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? So this promise was that one would come. So what did we already see? That this one would come and would conquer Satan, would, would deal a death blow to the enemy. Here again, there's a promise. He will possess their gates. So this is a, a, a battle. That's what we're seeing here, this battle against Satan, a spiritual battle, who this person would be victorious. But also it would be a seed of Eve. It would be a seed of Abraham, meaning it would be fully human. So here's the promise. A descendant of Abraham will conquer the enemy and bless every nation on earth. That's the second part of that promise, which is super cool. This Messiah would come not just for the nation of Israel, but to bless every nation on earth. So again, things are getting a little bit clearer. Now, Abraham's descendants grow. As you read through your Old Testament, there, there becomes millions of them. Uh, 500 years later-ish, right, they're in Egypt. They had grown, they had moved to Egypt uh, because of a famine, and there they are enslaved. And after this, we're going to see God give somewhat of a, a type of how he delivers. We, we see a story of how he sets his people free, how he deals with it. And this sets a pattern for how he will do it in the future. So here's Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel. They are there in Egypt. And as you probably know, you remember the stories that God sends Moses to set them free. And Moses comes and tells the people, right, God's people, God's going to set you free. And then he moves on to these plagues that are, that are dealt on Egypt. You probably remember the plagues. Uh, water uh, is turned into blood. There's frogs. There's gnats. There, there's all this stuff. And as the story goes, they go before uh, the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh says, I'll set him free. And then he doesn't. Okay, you know, make the gnats go away. I'll set him free. And then he doesn't. And God is orchestrating all this to lead to the very last plague. And in this last plague, again, God gives his pattern of salvation. And if you remember, that final plague was the death of the firstborn. God said the firstborn in every house is going to die. But Israel, my people, you can avoid this punishment. And in Exodus 12, 21 to 23, Moses comes and tells them how they can avoid this punishment. It says, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and he said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel on the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. They are set free. They are protected by the blood of an innocent lamb. And the Messiah that would come, the Christ, the Messiah would fit God's pattern of saving people through a blood sacrifice. Again, they, this, this picture kind of becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And this story of God setting them free out of Egypt is repeated through 
the rest of the Old Testament. You also see it in the New Testament repeated, pointed back to, here's how God does it, here's how God does it, and he does it through the blood of a lamb. Now, kind of a side note, if you've spent much time reading the Bible, you probably recognize the people are kind of messed up, <laughs> right? You talk to somebody maybe who hasn't read the Bible, and they're like, oh, it's just full of a bunch of good people. There's very, very few really good people in Scripture. In fact, it seems like the people are just trying to get in God's way and stop him from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. You start with Abraham, right? God promises Abraham he'll be a great nation. He'll have this Messiah coming from his line, all this. Um, and he's like, it's not working out, right, with Sarah. And so Sarah gives her handmaid. His wife gives, like, the servant, well, sleep with her and have a kid. He's like, okay, right? So he has Ishmael kind of getting in God's way. God says, that's not my plan. I told you it's going to be through Sarah. And so God works it out. I mean, you move on and there's all kind of sexual immorality and violence among God's people. My point with that is as you read through, again, people seem to try and stop, but nothing will stop God's plan. And I think that's the great message, even as we look through all this, that God had a plan from the beginning. He knew before sin entered that sin was going to enter and he knew what he was going to do to fix it. And so all of it, he's preparing, right? He's setting it up for how he will save, and nobody can get in his way. Even times where it looks like, oh, that, that ruined it. God uses those things for his good to accomplish his purposes. God is working out his plan. Nothing can stop it. As we see that there, that should give us hope now. That has not changed. God is still in control. God isn't making it up as he goes, right? It wasn't like he, he made Adam and Eve, put him in the garden, says, this is great. And then they said, he's like, what do I do now, <laughs> right? How am I going to accomplish this? He knew he had a plan to what he was going to do. So now Moses leads the people out, right? The people are, are free. They move on. And in this one generation, God is going to reveal much more about the Messiah. In fact, Moses is a prophet who is a type of Christ to come. Even Moses says, there will be a prophet that comes like me, only Jesus is going to be much greater than Moses. And they learn some things. And one of those things is blood atonement. So if you remember, they, they, they leave, they're in the, the wilderness for 40 years, and in there God gives them the law. Now he gave Adam and Eve one, right? They had one rule, <laughs> don't eat from the tree. You can do anything else, just don't eat from the tree. Things had deteriorated so much, God has to give the nation 613 laws. Not just one, 613, the most famous are obviously the Ten Commandments. And so he gives them these commandments, but knowing they can't fulfill them. He gives them this standard. Again, sin is still the issue. Sin was the issue with Adam and Eve. Sin was the issue that messed up the world. Sin is still the issue, but God now defines it for his people. He says, here's the standard. Here's what I expect, and you can't live up to it. You can try and, and should, but you won't live up to it. And so in that, he gives atonement. In Leviticus 17, 11, he says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So God makes very clear that atonement for sin is through a blood sacrifice. Now they had many sacrifices, right? In their system of worship, they had many sacrifices, but they had one significant sacrifice once a year, and it was the sacrifice of atonement. And they would take a lamb, and it had to be a, a perfect lamb, unblemished, right? All of this is pointing to what God would do in his Messiah, but it had to be a perfect lamb. Uh, and often I'll ask this question, who is it that killed the lamb? 
And most people will answer it was the priest. They would take it to the priest. The priest would kill it. No, the sinner would kill their own lamb. So you would have to bring a lamb. I mean, this precious little fuzzy, perfect thing, and they would pin it between their legs, and they would pull its chin back, and they would slice its throat. Can you imagine being a 14-year-old kid doing this, and then a 15-year-old? And then a fi- every year after year, they do this blood for atonement. They understood sin's a big deal. This innocent animal has to die for my sin to be covered. But it was temporary. They had to keep doing it over and over and over. I mean, you can just imagine, especially the first one, we don't know exactly what age they began, probably 13. But imagine the 13-year-old that does that for the first time. I'm not sinning this year because I don't want to do this next year. Inevitably, they do. God is teaching them, you can't live up to it, but I will cover it through a blood sacrifice. God allows for people to atone for their sins through a perfect sacrifice. So again, things start to get clear. How will God deal with this sin? Through a blood sacrifice. Now eventually, again, God's people grow. They're, they're in the land. Things are, are decent. They ask for a king. They get a bad one. Then the second king, King David. God's king. A man after God's own heart. A good man. This man gets another covenant, another promise. In 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 14. God tells David, I will raise up your offspring after you. One of your own sons. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This is the Davidic covenant. Now, some of this was fulfilled in Solomon. One of his sons, right? Solomon would build the temple. Solomon would build a house. But Solomon died. And and every king, they died. So they did not have a throne forever. And then the nation of Israel would be taken into captivity, right? We move to the New Testament and Rome is ruling over them. They don't have a king. So this promise here, again, some clarity comes. Who is this Messiah going to be? He's going to be a king. Right, We sing the songs uh, uh, on Christmas about a king to come. This Messiah would come to be a conqueror and a king from the line of David. So, so much is becoming clear here, right? He's going to conquer Satan. He's going to beat him. He's going to bless every nation on earth. He's going to be a king. I mean, getting clear, right? That, that picture reveal, it's getting clear and it's getting clearer. They were great expectations of who this Messiah would be during the time of Jesus. Uh, you can read Josephus, he's a historian and some other. There were other messiahs that came, or that claimed to be, that wanted to be during that time. So people were anticipating a messiah to come. Maybe it's this guy. Maybe it's this guy, right? What's his lineage? Who is that? In Isaiah, Isaiah is another prophet that comes along. He's about 700 years before the time of Christ. And he, he gives us a little bit more clarity about who this messiah would be. In Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. It says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
So here we see what he promised to David, right? This Messiah would, would rule the government. He would have a kingdom. This is physical, right? A time of righteousness and peace. That's what they were looking forward to. But there's also a hidden promise in here. There's, again, that, that picture revealed. There's something hidden here that the people in Jesus' time didn't seem to fully understand until later. And what is it? Look in here. What shall he be called? Wonderful counselor. Great. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. A child would be born who is called Mighty God. That's weird. How could a human being be called Mighty God? So the Messiah would be born, yet would also be divine. Isaiah gives another prophecy. Because as we go through, we see all these things about what this Messiah will do, right? Conquer. Bless every nation on earth. Fix what was broken at the beginning. How will he do it? There's the big question, how? Again, it looks like a conqueror. It looks like political, and that's what the people were expecting. Somebody to come and, and beat Rome, right, and set them free. Well, in Isaiah 53, he shows how the Messiah will do this. He writes, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah here describes crucifixion. He was pierced for our transgressions. By his wounds, we are healed. Again, this is something they didn't seem to fully understand until after Jesus died and rose, and they started to get some clarity on, on how this had to happen. But remember, Jesus is going to the cross. He tells his disciples, and Peter says, no, 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 bad idea. <laughs> right? They didn't fully understand these things. So they had some great anticipation, but it wasn't all fully clear. The Messiah would be a suffering servant who would take the sins of all mankind on himself through a brutal death. We could go on. In, in fact, the entire Old Testament is really pointing to Jesus and what he would do. We could go on, but we're going to stop there. And now let's look at Jesus. Because again, Christmas, we're celebrating that first Christmas. We're celebrating Messiah coming, Christ, God fulfilling what he wanted. I, I mean, golly, it gives me chills. Think about that day. When Jesus was born, right, the, the wise men come. They had traveled before. They see this star, this, this miracle, right? There's angels that appear saying glory to God. These shepherds see. I mean, all this stuff. Jesus came with some pomp and circumstance. Yes, he was born in a manger, humble. But there was a lot going on during that time. I mean, people that looked at the stars were like, something is happening. And it was God bringing it all to, I mean, it gives me chills. He was planning from the beginning when he would do it. So it, just the star, again, this, this is off a little bit. But anyway, maybe you've seen this documentary that I think it's called The Bethlehem Star or The Star. And it, it's, we don't know if it's true, but it's one of those, like, maybe this is how God did the star. You know, somebody who you can actually track the stars, you know, with the computer, everything's predictable. And tracked it back down to the time where they wondered, this might be when Jesus was born. And looked, it's like, oh my goodness, like, Jupiter, and like all this stuff happened in the stars where things aligned in a unique way that could have been seen from Earth. Maybe that's how he did it. 
And if so, that means God, when he spoke in Genesis 1, let there be light, right? He created the stars in the heaven. He put them moving in a way that in this one day, thousands of years later, it would come to a perfect point. I mean, that's a miracle. Or he did this miracle, like, I mean, right, whichever way, it's a miracle. God's in control. But he planned it from the very, very beginning. Again, people tried to get in the way. <laughs> Satan clearly was trying to stop it through the whole process, but nothing would stop God from doing what he would do in Jesus. So let's look back at some of these anticipations, these expectations, and look at Christ. Who is Jesus? Well, the big one, right? The biggest one for them, probably, they wanted him to be a king. They knew he was going to be a king, and so they were looking for somebody from the line of David. In both Matthew and Luke, you see uh, a genealogy tracing the line from Abraham, David, to Jesus. Uh, we think one of them goes to Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, and the other goes to Mary. So both Mary and Joseph, you know, Joseph is not Jesus' physical father, but he's his adoptive father. He's a descendant of David. Mary probably also, so nobody could debate he's not a, a son of David. He is. And in Romans 1.3, Paul says, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So Jesus is a human descendant of David, of Abraham, of Eve. He is that seed, that offspring predicted. But yet he was also fully God. That piece that they didn't fully understand. Uh, in John 14, 9, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why did they want to kill Jesus so bad? Because he was claiming to be the son of God. He was claiming to be equal with God. That's why they wanted to kill him. That's why they eventually did kill him. So the Messiah would be born, yet would be divine. And here he is. Jesus is a true descendant of Abraham and King David and is fully God. Now, what was the very first? Let's go back to Genesis 3. What was the very first expectation? That somebody would come who would conquer Satan. Somebody would crush Satan's head. Satan would bruise his heel. He would crush his head. What happened on the cross? Right? Jesus died on the cross. Who was behind that? The Jews, yeah. The Romans, yeah. Satan, right? When you read through, you see Judas, who betrays Jesus. When Judas leaves the, the Last Supper that they're having together, Satan enters into him. Satan is behind all of this. So Satan who is not divine, right? Satan and, and demons, they don't know everything. They can't see everything. Uh, they're not omniscient. They're not, not omnipresent. They're trying to thwart God's plan here. And so, so Satan, I'm going to kill the Messiah. So it's, they knew who God was. They knew who Jesus was. They think they killed him, right? There's a bruise on his heel. Ha ha, we win. Then Jesus rises from the dead three days later, right? That's the death blow. That's the, the skull-crushing blow on the serpent of God winning through Jesus' resurrection. Awesome. But you see it throughout scripture too, that Jesus wins against the devil. As Jesus is doing his ministry, he's going around casting out demons. It was something nobody had seen before, not like that. He would go along, the demons would recognize him, and he'd say, you, out, boom, done. I mean, it was no competition at all. Jesus was the power. Jesus was the strong man, as he describes elsewhere. And, well, Satan is a strong man. Jesus is the stronger man that, that basically beats up the strong man and takes his stuff, meaning people. This is one of my favorite verses, Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gate of hell will not prevail. Right? The gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus came aggressively as a conqueror to beat Satan and to capture people to him. 
In Colossians 1.13, it said this way, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was completely victorious over Satan. Satan has no authority over those who call Jesus Lord. So that victory right there, it was not political that time. The first time Jesus came, it was to deal with sin first. Now, we can't skip over God's method, right? We looked at the Passover lamb, and then we looked at the sacrificial system of how to atone. This is the part they seem to not understand, right? The, the Messiah would come, would set free, but how? Only through blood can there be forgiveness of sins. Uh, Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. When Jesus began his ministry, he was walking down the street one day, and John the Baptist was there with some of his disciples. And in John 1, 29, he, said, he sees Jesus coming, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Whoa. <laughs> right? Again, these are people who sacrificed a lamb every single year. They took this perfect, innocent lamb, pulled its head back, slit its throat, spilled its blood so that they, their sin could be atoned for. Here, he's saying, here's somebody that's going to make you not have to do that anymore. He's going to take away the sin of the world. Wow. Right? And right then, some of those disciples that were John's, that were with him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He's like, well, we're going to follow him. So some of Jesus' disciples were John's first, and they moved. And John was great with that. Yeah, absolutely. Go follow the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. Because Jesus is this Lamb of God. When Jesus was betrayed, right, and we talk about the Last Supper, and we enjoy communion. When we take communion, we're remembering the Last Supper, what he did there. What meal were they eating? It was the Passover meal. It was the, the meal where they were remembering God setting his people free from Egypt through the sacrifice of a perfect lamb. You think that's an accident? I mean, God put all that together so that they could go, whoa, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Through his blood, when we receive it, he passes over us in judgment. Jesus is the lamb of atonement. Through his blood, all our sin is covered so we can be forgiven. Wow, right? It, it became clearer and clearer and clearer. Jesus' death covers every sin and provides forgiveness and salvation to the one who trusts in him. But there's one thing that they really were expecting that he didn't do right then. Hebrews 9, 26 to 28. The writer says this, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. They were anticipating the Messiah to come to set up a kingdom to rule. And he did set up a spiritual kingdom, but not physical yet. That's still to come. So they anticipated something. They didn't expect Jesus to come first to deal with sin and set us free spiritually, but that's what he did. And now he's coming back. You realize Christianity wasn't a new religion when Jesus came. It was the completion of his promises to God's people. Christianity has really completed Judaism. When Jesus came along, he didn't bring something new. 
It was something old that was completed in him. All these promises pointed to him. God had a plan from the beginning that he carried out in Jesus. And Jesus is that king, that king, the descendant of David, and he admitted it. In Luke 23, 3, he's standing before Pilate. Pilate says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answers, you've said so. He says, yes, I am. And when they crucified him, they hung a sign over his head, the king of the Jews, trying to make fun of him, right? He claimed to be the king of the Jews, and he's dead. And then he rose from the dead, the king. And the king is going to come back with authority and power, and he's going to set up that government. He's going to set up that rule and reign, and so we still look forward to that. Jesus is the true king who rules his spiritual kingdom now and will rule physically sometime in the future. So at Christmas, we're seeing the fulfillment of God's promises. That's what I hope that we can get today, that, that as we anticipate Christmas coming, we're seeing that it wasn't just kind of a one thing. I mean, it wasn't just a surprise, oh, we didn't know God was going to do this. There were things that were a surprise, but there were things that they were expecting, and God's people were anticipating this Messiah, right? Uh, Mary, and you see Elizabeth, you see all these things building before, and those who were truly Jesus, God followers, they recognized Jesus. They were excited for the fulfillment of these promises that for generation on generation they were looking forward to. It was completed in Jesus. Now, we're blessed that we get to look back, and we get to see all this clearly and, and who Jesus is. We're also blessed now that we're in a new covenant, right? We're not in the old covenant. We're not having to obey and follow that law, but we now have the Holy Spirit in us. Everything is different, right? Sin, Jesus is victorious over sin and the devil, and we can walk in victory in him. So we celebrate, and again, Christmas, we're looking forward to Christmas, but we're looking forward and remembering Jesus coming. You know, I like the, the songs we were singing before, and that picture of God coming down and becoming a man. What a miracle that is so that he could die, so that he could live this life for us. Now, next week, we're going to talk more about that, and it's going to be great. But today, let's worship it, and I hope if there's any application, right, we want God to, to work in us. I hope it's this, peace, joy, hope. From the beginning, nobody could thwart his plans. Who do you think you are, that you can thwart his plans? God's going to do what he wants to do. He began a good work in you. He's going to complete it. And so we can have hope that God will complete what he put in motion. Let's pray. God, thank you. <laughs> thank you for filling scripture with people uh, that are messed up, uh, but that you show them grace, uh, that make mistakes and you use their mistakes for your glory. God, we want to be people who follow you. We want to be people who glorify you. And God, we thank you that we can't mess up your plans. But God, we want to fit in with your plans. God, this holiday season, this Christmas season, we remember, Jesus, you coming as a baby. You coming from, from heaven on a throne into the dirt to be born in a manger. Such humility. We love you. Let our words now, let our, our, our voices as we sing be a fragrant aroma to you. We worship you because you are God and you are worthy and we love you. In your name, amen.